From Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 7, hear now God's word. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up together, and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And thus far the reading of God's word, and all God's people said, Imagine that you have lost your job, the transmission went out on the car, and a pipe just broke under the sink. It's a horrible day, and you feel overwhelmed. In our broken world, things break. In fact, we break. The Christians at Ephesus had some big challenges that threatened to overwhelm them. Likewise, we have pressures, pressures from a world that is erratic and and threatening, as well as all of our personal difficulties. But what if, in my first scenario, you received a call from a rich uncle and he told you that you had nothing to worry about? He was going to take care of all of your needs. Now how's your day? Paul wrote to the Christians at Philippi, and he reminded them, And my God shall supply all of your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ, uh, glory by Christ Jesus. He expands on this, on this verse in Ephesians chapter 2. Regardless of how poor or how overwhelmed you might feel, that's very subjective, that's our perspective, that's if we're just looking at our circumstances and ourselves, no matter how we might feel, the reality, the the objective reality is that your heavenly Father is rich. And as a result, in the big scheme of things, you have nothing to worry about. He is rich in mercy, according to our text. He is rich or great in love. He is rich in grace. He is rich in kindness. Consider our condition. We saw in the first few verses of this chapter, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were under the corrupting power of the devil, as well as the lust of our own flesh. We were under God's wrath. We were helpless. We were hopeless. And then we read those first two words of chapter 4, but, or verse 4 of chapter 2, but God. So why did God raise us up, set us free, and indeed set us up in the heavenly places with Him? What were His motives? Why would He do all of that for us? What was His objective? Four of God's infinite attributes are presented to us as explanations for this saving action toward us. And if we begin to really see this, if we begin to completely comprehend what they mean for us, then we are going to have a brand new perspective 
on our lives as well as all the circumstances of our lives. Our bad days will start to look like good days. We are easily consumed, aren't we, by the small aggravations of life, the inconveniences, the flat tires, the rainy day, a difficult customer, a quarrel over the checkbook. We're depressed about this or that, uh, a multitude of things. We grumble. We complain. But there's nothing like a big thing to drive out a little thing. If we can see ourselves objectively, if we can stand back, if we can get the big picture, we, we, uh, as we really are in the purpose of God, then all of these little difficulties will be put in perspective. In other words, if we could conceive of what God is doing in us and to us and for us and through us, if we could see the glory that awaits us, It would change the way we see everything else. And so Paul, in all of his many afflictions, could say this in 2 Corinthians 4, 16-18, Therefore we do not lose heart. Even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day, for our light affliction, and Paul, if you read the list of Paul's afflictions, they're great. And yet he describes them as light. Our light, for our light affliction, which is but for a moment. See the perspective he's putting this in? These things that look big are not big, they're light. And they're just for a moment. Is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but of the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporary. But the things which are not seen are eternal. Returning to the question of why God would have made us alive and why He raised, up, raised us up into the heavenly places, we should keep in mind that man's chief end is to glorify God. And thus... The salvation of man is primarily and ultimately about the glory of God. Verse 7 tells us, quote, that in in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. God is going to show something, demonstrate something. He is demonstrating himself, in fact, to the whole world. The riches of His glory are made known by His merciful saving of sinners. Romans 9, 22-24. What if God, wanting to show His wrath and make His power known, endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And that He might make, that he might make known the riches of His glory on the vessels of mercy which he had prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he called. So you see, it is important to remember that the first intent in salvation is not primarily about us. 
but rather about the glory of God. Now, let me make a note here. Sometimes we'll hear a complaint about this, as as this is supposedly inappropriate and egotistical of God to be concerned about his own glory. But you see, God is a different creature. God, well, God's not a creature. God's the creator. We are creatures. God is of a different, different substance. And so he is infinitely perfect in, uh, and is therefore worthy of infinite glory. To not render to him glory, that is to not worship him, is to take that which is rightfully owed to him. He is a jealous God. Dr. Lloyd-Jones commented on this. He said, it is extremely difficult, is it not, to realize that there were people in this world a hundred years ago and that they had problems and difficulties. It is still more difficult to realize that there were people in the world a thousand years ago who never thought of us at all. We feel that we are so important and that our time in this world, just our little sector, is the whole of history. But those who were before us felt the same. And we can be equally certain that in a hundred years and in a thousand years, in a thousand years' time, the generations then on earth will never give us a thought at all. But how difficult it is for us to realize that. And yet that is the very thing we have to do. We have got to learn to view ourselves and the whole problem of man, the whole crisis of history, and especially the whole subject of salvation in this objective, historical manner. God is doing something much bigger than us. It includes us, thankfully, but it's so much bigger than us. We need to see ourselves in the light of that. So salvation, you see, vindicates and demonstrates God's character in a way that nothing else could. In this text, Paul piles up superlatives, superlative descriptions concerning God and his work toward us. And with these terms, with these terms, he gives us simple and profound reasons to be confident in the face of any difficulty. I want you to hear that because I'm going to give you now just a little tight package of something, uh, four things here that are in this text that if you'll just remember them, you're going to need them, I promise you. You'll probably need them today and if not tomorrow, later this week, these will be necessary and that's why Paul is giving them to us, why the Holy Spirit inspired the word here. We can remember these basic truths And they will give us confidence in the face of any difficulty. These are the four riches that are mentioned in this text. Let me just say them again. I've already mentioned them. These are the things you need to remember. Your father, who loves you, your father is rich in mercy, in love, in grace, and in kindness. So no matter what's happening, you should tell yourself, when when you're tempted to despair, when you're worried, when you're overcome, my Father is rich. And He's rich in the things that I need the most. Mercy, love, grace, and kindness. He's not aloof. He's not disinterested. 
He's not harsh. He, he is so attuned to what's going on that, I'm, that it's part of his plan. Rich in mercy. What's a better demonstration of God's mercy than that which he shows in the rescue of a rebellious and fallen human being? We can join with Peter, the Apostle Peter, in blessing God for such a lavish mercy. Here, 1 Peter 1, 3-5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His abundant mercy, see the rich, the rich mercy, abundant mercy, has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is incorruptible and undefiled, and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. I think we too easily let these kinds of words pass through our heads and out our ears when in fact they are some of the most profound words ever written. Here's some more from Peter. Chapter 2, verse 9 through 10. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but now are the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Rich are great in love. Adam certainly knew something about the love of God before the fall. But how much greater is the love of God perceived since the fall and his work of redemption? Listen to this commentary on this very point by the Apostle Paul from Romans 5, verses 6, uh, 6 through 11. For when we were still without strength, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely a righteous man will, will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us. In that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Let me summarize again this amazing contrast. While we were enemies, God loved us. That was our condition. That was our state when His love found us, when His love came to us. We weren't His friends. We weren't in communion with Him. We were running from Him. We were in rebellion against Him. And that's... The kind of love is, that is demonstrated in salvation. In fact, the fact that you are an object of God's love, no matter what else happens 
is a comfort and an assurance beyond all measure. You have not only not been forgotten, you are the direct object of His saving love. Rich in grace. He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up together and made us to sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus that in the ages to come He might show the exceeding riches of His grace. He's not just rich. He's very rich. He's the richest. What could demonstrate His grace, that is, His ill-deserved favor toward us, more than this? That is the ultimate show of grace. Think of Peter's benediction, 1 Peter 5, 10-11. But may the God of all grace, who called us to His eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you, To Him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. You see, it's not that you don't deserve to have bad things happen to you. You do. It's that in spite of what you deserve, God's grace is at work to override the weak and the bad things. And so Paul... Paul himself could write this. Listen, 1 Corinthians 12, 7-9. And lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations. So Paul says, you know, I'm, I'm an apostle. I, God's spoken to me. And, 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 and so that I don't become puffed up in this, what does he say? A thorn in my flesh was given to me. A messenger of Satan to buffet me lest I be exalted above measure. Concerning this thing, I pled with the Lord three times that it might depart from me, and He said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in my infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distress, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. God's grace. Rich in kindness. As a capstone, Paul says, this was all the result of his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus Consider this, Adam knew God and he knew God's kindness in his state of innocence. But Adam never knew the kindness of God the way that he and we came to know the kindness of God after sin. Again, another commentary from Paul from Titus chapter 3, 3-7. For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But, there's that word again, but when the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out 
on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And so God, and this is what's amazing now, if we can up this a little bit more, is that God actually does this through the church. Look, look, at, look at yourself. Look around you. He, God's going to take this and, and do that and glorify himself. Verse 7, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. That's right. It's accomplished through you and me. It's God's work for us, in us, and through us where his greatest glory is seen. In this truth, we are plucked out of our little self-centered, subjective state of mind and we are given a sight of something that is much bigger and something much more grand. We are part of God's eternal plan of redemption. A plan that was begun before the foundation of the world. Paul again expands on this in Ephesians chapter 3, the next chapter, verses 9 and 10. This great mystery was hidden, but now has been revealed, he says, to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God and created all things through Jesus Christ. Listen to this. To the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. Notice the intent or the purpose was to make all this known by way of the church. God has used and He is using and He will use the church to display His wisdom and His glory. Men think the Bible is foolish. For the message of the cross, Paul says, is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God, for it is written, God, we're getting a, a pullback of the curtain, the end of the story. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, God says, and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since the wisdom of the of, of the God, for since in the wisdom of God the world through wisdom did not know God. It pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For Jews request a sign, Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews a stumbling block, and to the Greeks foolishness, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. You see, there is going to be in the future, simultaneously, both a rude and a glorious awakening. There is going to be quite the demonstration to all the principalities and powers. They may mock and laugh now. But as Psalm 2 says, he who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. 
We, the church, are part of the great drama that is unfolding in history. God's vindication of Himself and His character by and through His people. Imagine that. 1 Corinthians 1. For you see your calling, brethren. Here's what I want you to picture. God, God, imagine going out to the trash heap, to the dump, and from what's there, taking that and building some fantastic object, some great work of art. For you see, you're calling, brethren, not, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things that are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen, and the things which are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. Why? Why is God doing it that way? That no flesh should glory in His presence. But of Him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, that as it is written, He who glories, let Him glory in the Lord. God is gathering up ordinary people, ordinary sinful people, throughout the world and across the ages from every tribe and every tongue. He began this work long ago, but it awaits a glorious consummation. Christ is at work preparing His bride for her glorious presentation. Ephesians 5, the end of this book. 25-27, Christ also loved the church and gave Himself for her. Why? That He might sanctify her and cleanse her with the washing of water by the Word. Why? That He might present her to Himself, a glorious church, having uh, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. The whole world is going to be invited to observe this marvelous display. You and I are being prepared for that. Think of a great artist who's prepared a sculpture, and there it is, draped, and the crowd is gathered for its final unveiling. God is still chipping away and placing His finishing touches on us. He's not finished yet. In fact, He is working right now, right this very minute, in this worship service, through His Word, through His sacrament, through His people, and through His Spirit. And so let me carry you back to the beginning of Ephesians. Remember what Paul said? Having made known to us the mystery of His will, according to His good pleasure, which He purposed in Himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, that is in the future, He might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in Him. In Him also we have obtained an inheritance being predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of His glory.
Listen to how John describes this in the book of Revelation, chapter 7. After these things, I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could number. This is John in heaven. Of all the nations, the tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels stood around the throne, and the angels and the four living creatures and fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And then verse 13, we read this. Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, Who are these arrayed in white robes? Where did they come from? And the answer is that they are those whose robes have been washed and made white by the blood of the Lamb. They are Christians. They are the church. All of God's saving work is on display. God's done it all, and therefore it's all to His glory. Now, if you come to really see this, to see yourself as a member of the church, the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, part of His eternal plan to glorify God, then I'd suggest you will no longer find the, find the world glamorous. In the words of the hymn, Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in His wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. You see, we are preparing for the biggest wedding ever. So let's get on with it. We're the bride. And so we should be consumed with it like brides get consumed with weddings. We should get excited about it. All of this should give us great assurance as Paul writes, being confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you, has he begun a good work in you? I'm confident, Paul says, that if he began a good work in you, he will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. You see, the end, the goal, the objective is certain. And you know why it's certain? Because it is all about vindicating God's holy character in salvation. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, when we consider where we came from, our helpless and hopeless condition, and when we consider what you have done for us, to us, and in us, we stand amazed. Your rich mercy, love, grace, and kindness have rescued and redeemed us, brought us up from the grave, and seated us in the heavenly places. Help us to see this reality, and may it override every circumstance of our lives, that we might be seen by all the world as the object of your mercy and love, and the trophies of your grace. May our lives truly be your everlasting glory forever and ever. Amen.
Romans 8, 31 through 39, Paul writes, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died, and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. If your theology is not practical, then it is not true. God does not give us truth to keep in our heads as theories. He gives us truth to set us free and to enable us to live abundant lives. For example, some of you received in the email a quotation I sent out from Nancy Wolgamuth this week that said, Great theology leads to great marriages. But we can expand on that and say that great theology leads to a good life. Because it is great theology that enables us to see life as it really is. Perspective is critical. How do you see yourself? Is your view narrow or broad? Is your view temporal or eternal? Is your view only subjective or is it objective as well? You see, we come back to the table week by week to gain perspective, to remember, to look behind us, but also to turn around and look ahead of us, to look to the future, to see what we otherwise would overlook. There is more to life than the current situation. 2 Corinthians 4, 16-18, Therefore, we do not lose heart. Even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. I don't know about you. Some of you you are on the upswing of life. And I reach that point where day by day, I feel the inward man, uh, the outward man perishing. Some days more than others. But you see, we're told to keep our eye on the inward man. Because he's still on the upward move. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. There's something bigger going on here. Do you see it? I mean see it. I don't just mean when you come to church. I don't mean just in this moment. 
But the goal is to get it in our bones so we see it all the time. When we're at work, when we're with our spouses or raising our kids or going to the grocery store. All of that is in service to this. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen, these momentary things are temporary. But the things which are not seen, eternal. O Lord, always be our support and strength in this spiritual warfare wherein we have pledged today to engage anew against the world, the flesh, and the devil. We have solemnly renounced our sins and expressed our desire above all things to be delivered from them. Be graciously pleased to accept these sincere intentions and desires and to consider our many weaknesses. Keep us steadfast in the resolutions that we have made against every evil way. We implore the constant assistance of your Holy Spirit to subdue our corruptions and restrain all lust, to make us delight in your ways and to replenish our souls with all Christian graces and virtues. As we examine our lives, may we find in ourselves a greater growth and steadfastness in the practice of our faith, greater striving daily after sin, against sin, and moving on from grace to grace and from virtue to virtue. May we live and die in your favor and obedience and be received into your eternal and glorious kingdom through the merits of your Son, Jesus Christ, our blessed Savior and Redeemer. Bless now this day and this week. Bless our rest, our feast, and our fellowship. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. And my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen.